0: Jesus is Lord. And again, this is is Adonai. This is the word in, in the Greek Old Testament, translating Yahweh, it used this word Adonai. Jesus is our Lord. He is our very God. He is the one who has created us. Creation was through him, he's the one who stepped into this creation to save his creation, human beings, men and women that he created in his image. This is the Jesus that we are talking about, who is Lord. And not only that, he is Messiah, he is Christ. Again, we have to sit in the cultures. they listen to this, these words. They have the life experience and the testimony of what's gone on. You have this massive crowd That they can't hide from these things. You know that some people are hiding from these things. But the response says when they heard this. So when they heard this this sound of this hurricane type wind. They heard that. This is what drew them in in the first place. They've heard the words of Peter as he has spoken to them. The Old Testament and given meaning to who Christ is. It says that they were cut to the heart. And I love this word. This is pierced. Their hearts, and this is what the word of God does to us in the very beginning when God first called you and first began speaking his word to you, and it happens today. Every time when you sit before him with the open word, his word is alive, it is powerful, it is sharper than any two-edged sword, Hebrews tells us, so that it pierces us. And it pierces us to the point that the word of God can differentiate and divide the spirit from the soul this is what's occurring in their lives this is what's occurred in our lives God has taken his word and he has pierced through our stony hard calloused obstinate hearts and this is why we gather together as often as we can to praise our God for who he is and for what he's done so many times in the Old Testament, we have these definitions that uh, human beings being stiff-necked, obstinate. I'm going to remove out of you this heart of stone. And I'm going to place into you a heart of flesh. This is what we talked about last week in Psalm 51, where this, uh, having a contrite heart, having a broken heart. This is a sacrifice that is not, uh, that God doesn't turn away. This is what this, this is the sacrifice that God desires is a broken and a contrite heart. It's a heart that's been pierced with his word. It's a heart that's been pierced with his truth. You know, we can all sit in our own walk and how God cut through, how he pierced through the hardness of our heart, but but... If your physical body right now is to be pierced with a sword into your heart, what's going to happen? You're going to die. You will cease to live. This organ that's in your chest pumping blood through your body, which is life. If it gets pierced, it dies. And this is the call that we have to the Lord. Come, come. And die. Take up your cross and follow me. Take up this this instrument that is a matter of fact. If you were carrying this object in that culture, you were on a death march. You were dying to self. And this is the call. If you want to be my disciple, take up your cross daily. Die to yourself. Submit to me. Let your heart be pierced with my word. Let me give you a heart of flesh A heart where my word is written upon it. And again, this doesn't happen just naturally. There's a process. We're gonna get into this. As as we begin here with a heart being pierced, later on, if you paid attention, it talks about that they were with with simple hearts. This idea of a heart that has been pierced being sanctified to this point where there's a heart, the, the relationship, the stones have been removed, and we'll get into that definition in a minute. So as they're listening to these words, they're being cut to the heart, and it leaves them with a question, what are we supposed to do? Now remember, in this, in this culture, we are dealing with Jewish believers in the Almighty God. They have the Word of God. They have, in obedience, in their belief, in their faith, they are pursuing God. They have gathered together in this community in obedience to God to rejoice and celebrate before God. So as we sat in this culture, in this day and age, we would say that these are believers. These are individuals who already have a relationship with God. And the piercing that's occurring in them is there's a lack there. How am I supposed to respond to who Jesus is? How am I supposed to respond to this revelation? This is this what I'm witnessing. And then, then the teaching of the word that as Peter is proclaiming the sermon. How am I supposed to respond to these things? What do I lack? What am I supposed to do? These are the same, this is the same sentence that Paul asks when Jesus radically appears to him on the Damascus road. And we'll touch that in Acts 9 when we get to it later on. But Lord, what do you want me to do? What shall I do? And look at Peter's response. Peter says to them, Repent. And this, in the the verb, this this is an active verb, which means that you have everything to do with its action. It is your responsibility when you hear the Word of God to respond to the Word of God in obedience, in simplicity, in truth looking to Jesus as our Savior, as the one who is transforming us, as the one who is going to enable us to repent. But this is the same when Jesus steps onto the scene and he is baptized with the Holy Spirit as he goes into the community, the first words out of Jesus' mouth. Which again, this is a summary for us in the Gospels. He is consistently in the culture telling the culture to repent. This is, again, Jewish believers, they have the truth. They have the word of God. They have a relationship with God. And as Jesus is teaching them, he's teaching them their need of repentance. You need a transformation of mind and heart. You don't need a new religion. You don't need a new God. What you need is a a life that has been renewed and regenerated in God himself. And this is the idea of repentance, right? It's the 180 degree. You were heading in this direction in life repentance is stop heading in that direction, stop thinking this way and have a transformation of not just mind but of action and activity and words. And then this turns into the sanctification process as we're following Jesus. The world is befo- behind me, Jesus is before me, I'm not going to turn back. But often we'll find ourselves doing this, we're looking backwards trying to find Jesus, follow Jesus. And we're gonna trip. we're gonna stumble. And this is, the, again, there's initial repentance. This is an action that, is re, that you are the one who is responsible for. And in this, I, I bring this up because, again, God is not the one who repents for you. You are the one who repents. You are the one who makes the decision, the conscious decision, I will follow Jesus. I will love him. God, help me. And as we follow him, Through his spirit, he is the one who is enabling. So this first action of repentance, it's always having this, it's a change of mind. It's responding to the gospel. It's responding to the word of God as often as we open it up, which hopefully is daily, that we're responding in repentance. Lord, change my mind, change my heart. Take the stones out of here, Lord, and make it a fertile ground for your word that it would produce the fruit that you desire to be produced. And not only that, the imperative of repentance, the next imperative is to be baptized. Now this one is a passive verb. You don't baptize yourself. You don't immerse yourself into God. You don't baptize yourself with the Holy Spirit. This is an action that is done for you. This is an action that is done upon you. He is the one. Jesus is our baptizer. He is the one who has baptized us, immersed us with his Holy Spirit. But there's a there's in that repentance there's an asking, Lord, clean me. Initiate me. Place me into your body. And this is this is supposed to be a public, radical life-changing experience in obedience to what the gospel tells us to do. We are to go, we are to make disciples, we are to baptize human beings in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This baptism, it's an act of obedience. We are submitting ourselves to that obedience, but the action is being performed by God himself, and we're receiving that baptism. What's unique in the culture, what we miss in this culture, is that baptism was an action for non-Jews when they were converted to Judaism. So in the culture, they'd have these mikvahs, so these pools where they could do their ritual washings. But when it came to conversion, when it became from converting from a Gentile to becoming a Jew, this is what this baptism is referring to. And this wasn't an action that a Jew performed. This is why John the Baptist, baptizing in the Jordan River, this is why he is such a radical contrast to what's going on in the Temple Mount. This is, the, this is how radical this action is supposed to be and was in this culture. They are being baptized in the name of this Jesus, his nature His character. He is my God. He is my Lord. He is my Savior. I am owned by him. That's what this initiation is. You are standing up politically and you are saying, I am owned. I have been created by and regenerated by this Jesus. He is my Lord. He is my Christ. He is my rabbi. He is my teacher. He is my king. And I am his. Radical, radical transformation of what? This is what your life was. Now this is who you are in him as you follow him. So this is the response. What am I supposed to do? I've been cut, I've been pierced, I've been convicted in regards to who Jesus is. Repent actively, be baptized, go through the motions actively, but recognize that you are the passive recipient of this baptism. The purpose is for the remission, for the freedom, for the pardon, the release of sins and the wages of sin, which is death. Jesus is our sacrificial lamb. He's freed us and pardoned us from our sins. absolutely beautiful. And you shall, matter of fact, you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the gift that was just given to the apostles and those who were with them on this day. Listeners, hearers, if you repent, if you were baptized in the name of this Jesus for the remission of your sins that he died for on that cross, you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit just as we have. And the promise, it is to you, is to the Jews, it is to your children, to the descendants of the Jews, and to all who are afar off, as many as our Lord God will call, that he will summon to himself. And this is what I said earlier, like this is is what we do week after week. As often as we gather together, don't come to me, don't come to Calvary Chapel, don't come to a culture, don't come to a church, you're coming to Jesus. You're responding to his summons in your life. And for Peter and the apostles, they would have this, uh, the call that's to all those who are afar off, the idea for them is they sit in it consciously, they're thinking about Jews that have been dispersed into other cultures. Even though they know theologically from the Old Testament That the call to have a relationship with God is for Jews and for Gentiles. But the mode of how, what the conversion looks like for them, they're not thinking that this is just a new thing that's going on. They would be looking for the, the Gentiles to go through a conversion process to become a Jew. That would have been their mode. And as we travel through the book of Acts... We're watching God undo their old religion. We're watching God do a new thing, what the new covenant means, as the gospel goes out to Jew and Gentile, that there's no longer Jew or Gentile in the body of Christ. There's no longer male or female in the body of Christ. We are one and unified. So that's his instruction. It says in verse 40, summarizing this with many other words, he used all kinds of words. Luke is giving us a summary of the message that he communicated to these people. He used many other words. And there's this intensity in regards to the testimony and the exhortation that he is giving to them. But this, this overall, again, umbrella... Not only the therefore, let it be known to you with assurance that God has made this Jesus whom you cruci- crucified, both, both Lord and Christ. The call is that is being proclaimed to people. It's be saved from this perverse generation. And that imperative, be saved, it's once again, it's not active. It's a passive verb. It means let God save you from this crooked twisted generation in which we live there's nothing new under the heavens the, the culture the generation that the Jews were living in the time that Jesus was alive and the time that he ascended to heaven it was a twisted perverse generation it was a twisted perverse time in history just as it is today cultures will cycle through Good, bad, through their different laws, all those kinds of things. When we think about the word perverse, usually we lock into sexual sins. But perversion, it's a twisting of the mind. It's redefining who God is. And Satan is really good at this. Takes the truth and gives it a little bit of twist. So it's no longer straight. Now this, there's a crookedness to the path of life. There's a crookedness to the culture. We see this in laws, we see this in judgment, we see this in classism, we see this in racism. We see this throughout our culture. We live in a perverse, crooked, twisted culture. And as we proclaim Jesus Christ, when we talk about being saved, what has Jesus saved you from? From my sins, from death. And also, he hasn't taken me home yet. He is the one who is empowering me to be holy as he is holy. So that as we dwell in the midst of this perverse generation, we've been saved out from it into a relationship with him, but we're still able to communicate to those who are out in the culture, be saved. You know that something's wrong. You know that something's off. And again, he's the one that gives us opportunity that as you walk alongside of your friends and your family and your coworkers and the strangers... What is it that they are noticing that's off in this world? And how would Jesus give you divine utterance to speak into their circumstance and into their situation? This is where you will find salvation. This is where you will find the transformed mind. This is where you're gonna find faith. You're struggling, you hate the circumstance, here's where Jesus will help you walk through this circumstance. You're afraid of death, here's the solution to death it's jesus christ himself with many words be saved summarizing it from this crooked and twisted generation then those who are there they are gladly receiving accepting welcoming the message the word they are in obedience they are being baptized says in this day so there's there's a question does that mean like in this overall period of time or on this very specific day of pentecost i love this 3000 souls 3000 human beings men women children at this time there were 3000 people who stepped out of death and into jesus's marvelous light we complain about this in a lot of different ways. Today, just in, in statistics, it's 2.7 million people convert from whatever other religion converts to becoming a follower of Jesus Christ per year in this world. So roughly 7,000 souls every single day are converted you can send in the statistics, those who are born in the Christian households, um, you know, there's all kinds of fluctuations in the statistics and those kinds of things, but those who are being converted from one religion to another, from the old man to the new man, roughly 7,000 human beings every single day. And here's where the real snapshot of the early church, what were they doing, what did this look like? As often, they're, they're gathering together. These are, these are summary statements, so this is kind of like a snapshot of what's going on in the culture. They're continuing steadfastly. This is persistent, obstinate devotion is what this word means in four things. And these all have the definition article before them because they're specific. It's not a one amongst many. It's very specific. They're continuing steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. So the apostles' teaching which this is the proclamation of the gospel. This is the teaching of what Jesus taught them for the last three years. This is the teaching of the word of God sitting in the apostles' teaching. They are together in the fellowship. Again, this is in 1 John we are told that our fellowship is truly with God. And fellowship has the idea, it's participation, it's sharing in life. So as often as we gather together, we've gathered together this morning to worship God, to fellowship with one another, which means that we are participating in one another's lives this morning. It's an act of participation. We're participating through finances, through conversations, through service. We're participating in worshiping together As we leave this place, we have opportunities to participate and share in each other's lives outside of the walls of here. But this is, it's having everything in common. And we're going to come, this idea of fellowship, koinonia is going to come up again. But it's the fellowship. So this isn't just the hanging out that the world does. It's that we are coming together, fellowshipping. Our true fellowship is with the almighty God. In him, as one and he is the one who is enabling us to share in one another's lives the other is the breaking of the bread so we look at this as communion but even as we sit this afternoon and having an agape meal a love feast in this culture in this time it's not just for an hour and a half that they're meeting together Get into Eastern culture. This is a longer event throughout the day. As they are gathering together on the Lord's Day, they're having and they're participating in a meal weekly together. Again, sit in the logistics of that. How many of you were, uh, had a little extra pressure this morning in preparation of food before you got out the door? Again, this is something that this culture, they're sitting in. As often as they gather together on a weekly basis, they're having this what's called a love feast, an agape meal. And it's referred to that, why? Because this is the dominant mood of the culture is love. Love for God. Love for one another. Again, this is, so you have 3,000 souls coming to the Lord on one day. What kind of logistic nightmare was that? How do you feed this many people? says later on in a minute that they're gathering from house to house also. They're gathering together in corporate prayer and worship in the temple. They're gathering from house to house. So now you have multiple house churches. How did the apostles make sure that the apostles doctrine is being taught in every single one of those locations? How did they make sure the needs of those communities were being met? There were successes. There were failures. There were some people that are there and being mooches and they don't understand and they don't get it. They're saying that they're fellowshipping, but they're really not participating because they're only there to consume. They had all those issues that we have because it's human beings. The whole spectrum of personalities from hyper charismatic personalities to totally stoic sticks in the mud like myself and everybody in between. This is the culture of the early church. And it says, in the prayers. Again, these four different things that are central to assembling together as brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. I pose this question. Do we fail in any of these things? Do we teach the apostles' doctrine here, yes or no? Please say yes. (laughs) Do we fellowship together? Do we participate in one another's life in Christ not just culturally, but in Christ? Do we participate in the breaking of the bread as often as we gather together through communion? We do the same thing every single Sunday afternoon. We may not sit down for a meal, but we have the snacks that are here to take out the edge off of hunger so that we can all hang out and participate in one another's lives, get to know one another in context. Do we pray together? So as a congregation as an assembly of the called out ones from the culture into a relationship of Christ, as a fellowship of believers, do we lack anything? Yes? No? We don't lack anything. How many more metrics do we add to that list in our culture? Well, how's the worship? How's Pastor Blake's homiletics? What's the sermon like? What do you guys provide for kids? What do you provide for the students? What's your your take and interpretation on this doctrine? What's your take and interpretation on that doctrine? We make the assembly of the body of Christ about so many things that it's not. The culture of love, the culture of grace that our almighty God has called us to is based upon these foundations. As often as you gather together, open up my word. Get to know me. And don't just open it, don't just be hearers of the word, but be doers of the word. Not somebody else's teaching, the apostles' teaching. As often as you come together, recognize that you are sharing and participating of the very life of the God who created the heavens and the earth. That overwhelms me. That that forces me to be patient with you, to love you, to seek to understand you, to seek to know you, to understand that he loves you just as much as he loves me. He created you with all of your your specific nuances, and it's not my job to change you. It's not my job to make you and to form you into anything. He's the one that gets to form you and to conform you and to transform you into Christ. I just get to walk alongside of that process. I get to participate in that process as I'm being conformed myself in fellowship. The responsibility that we have when you come together Brothers and sisters, remember Jesus. Remember his sacrifice. Remember who he is. He is the one who created the heavens and the earth. He is the one that created men and women, male and female, in his image. He is the one who knew that we were gonna be extremely broken. He is the one who became born to become just like us. He is the one who lived that sinless and perfect life. He is our teacher. He is our rabbi. He is the one who has, again, delivered us, saved us, is our refuge and protection from all the evils that we see in this world. Remember his body. Remember the new covenant. Our relationship with God is not based upon this like list of rules and Old Testament laws and here's your good people and here's your bad Christians and all this kind of stuff. It's this community of grace. Remember that he's your sacrificial lamb. Remember his resurrection. Remember where he is right now, not just seated at the right hand of the Father, but very present in you and in us and in this room. In light of that, don't forget to talk to God. We do a lot of talking to one another. Together, let's talk to God. Are you having problems? Let's go to God together. Need somebody that you just want to celebrate what God has done in your life today and yesterday and last week? Let's pray together. Let's worship together. This is what the community of believers looks like. And then there's this fear, this, this reverence and awe. It's coming upon every soul again. This this summary stamp. There's these different wonders and signs that are being performed through the apostles. We're going to sit in these as we go through as we go through Acts. One of them is is I got I, there's my shadow right there. In Acts chapter 4, it talks about Peter's shadow that people were being placed like where he would walk just so that his shadow would pass over them so that they'd be healed. Like, what? That's weird. Same thing, Paul, it says his, his, his apron, his handkerchiefs, like he's wiping his head with a sweaty handkerchief, and you go lay this on somebody, they're gonna be healed. That's weird but it's a sign, it's a wonder, it's a miracle to bear testimony that as they are witnessing who Jesus Christ is, they're not just a bunch of wingnuts proclaiming some new doctrine and trying, to create, and trying to grab a bunch of followers for themselves. They are preaching to you your very salvation, your very life, listen to them. This is why these signs and wonders are being performed through the apostles. Now this is weird Verse 44 says, Now all who believed were together, and they had all things in common. They sold their possessions and goods, and they divided them among all as anyone has need. So here's the whole community together 3,000 souls plus. They are believing, they are in faith together in the same. Um, it literally, it means in the same. They're together. They're in the same place in the same doctrine. It says that they have all things in common in koinonia, in fellowship, in sharing. It's that same word in regards to common. Here, you have the believers in this community that are there in Jerusalem. They are selling their property. They're, they're literally they're selling their land and their goods. So their their mobile possessions. They're putting these into the common pot so to say and then here you have the early churches dividing distributing them amongst all whoever had need so what does that mean are you all ready to go and sell your homes and your land come put all those funds into the church's bank accounts where the elders will now distribute those funds based upon the needs that you have We'll all set up tent here. You know, we got 13 acres of property here. We can all have a bunch of tents. And uh, as long as, uh, I guess, as you're dry and you got some clothing and you got enough food, that's all that you need. I'll be living fat somewhere else, though, you know, mooching off the bank account. No, but seriously, I mean, is this, is what, this is what happened in this culture. Doesn't say everybody was. But as they're gathering together in the body of Christ based upon the needs and the circumstances that are going on here in Jerusalem. Yeah, we don't see this happen in Corinth. We don't see this happen in Asia. We don't see this happen in Rome. This is the only community of believers where we see this happening in in the New Testament. They're selling their land. They're selling their goods. They're bringing those things because there's needs to take care of the community. This is as Jews are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. They're getting excommunicated from their synagogues. They're losing relationships with family. They're losing jobs. This is, this is a very radical experience that they're having in their culture. And it had to be met with very radical action to help take care of the community. And that's what this is referring to. So even in later on, as, as you travel through history and even through the rest of Acts and the word of God, the Jerusalem church finds itself in poverty where the poor community in Greece, Paul is in the poor community of Greece where people are giving out of their poverty to help take care of the extreme poverty in Jerusalem. So this wasn't a sustainable event, but what is being communicated to us is that there has been a radical transformation of life. And not only just have people stepped out of death and come into his marvelous light and life, people are stepping into the action of radical living as they follow Jesus Christ. Lord, I am yours. Remember baptism? Sign of ownership. All of your stuff, all of your time, your mind, your heart is his. So we ask, Lord, what do you want me to do with my stuff? What do you want me to do with my time, with my service, with my abundance? As I've asked the Lord that over the years, often he's, he's, he's led me to do some pretty radical and uncomfortable things. But when the Lord tells you to do something, what do you do? Do you do it or do you remain in obstinacy and stubbornness? Anytime that I tell the Lord, no, I am a miserable wretch. Every time I've told the Lord, yes, regardless of what life circumstance looks like, I'm filled with his joy and filled with his peace. But again, this community, the picture that we have in this community, it's a picture of radical obedience out of love to who Jesus Christ is and out of love for one another as brothers and sisters. We're going to see later on, we're going to see Ananias and Sapphira lie about the selling of their property and the consequence that that had. We're going to watch the early church fail to meet the needs of the community. It says right here that they're distributing to anyone that they had need. We watch them fail in this. And the solution to help make sure, how how do we make sure that these needs are actually taken care of? Again, as they're processing a very radical transformation in life and culture, they're continuing daily with one accord in the temple. So again, this is, a lot of them are jobless. Some of them have come from external communities to where it says that they're remaining in Jerusalem, where they're already living there. Um, Some would have gone back home to their cultures, but some are remaining there. They have this freedom meeting together daily. They're meeting in the temple, so they're coming together again. This is this is a very Jewish um, process of worship in community that we're witnessing in the early church, and that takes on different flavors as the gospel goes into different communities, Gentile communities. It says they're breaking bread from house to house. So not only in the the public gatherings, but they're meeting together in one another's homes, fellowshipping, eating their food with this extreme gladness. And here's where we're gonna end, this whole idea of simplicity of heart. So in in the initial message, and this is where we all enter into this relationship with Christ, where he's taken that sharp sword of the word of God and he's driven it into our hearts. He's pierced our hearts, and we've responded to him. This idea of a pierced heart becoming a simple heart. this idea of a simple heart, it means a level ground. It is ground that stones have been removed out of. Ask Karen this morning, just because she's our Scottish sister. In regards, to anybody that's seen like aerial pictures of Scotland, you have this beautiful, lush green pasture. And out of this green pasture, bordering all these green pastures is what? Stone walls. Why? Because when God created the earth, it's like he just dumped stones everywhere. Scotland looks like that. The land of Israel looks like that. When you walk around Israel, there are rocks everywhere. And it's taken the hard work in those fields to take that stone and go and stack it. Some of those stones would be on the surface, pretty easy to lift, lighter stones. Others, you gotta have a pickaxe, getting these stones out of the ground. This is a picture of our heart, that as the Lord pierces our heart with his word, makes our heart of stone into a heart of flesh. As he casts his word upon our heart every single day, some of that seed, we have those different descriptions. But you have a responsibility And the Lord has a responsibility to see that the heart is free from stones, to see that it's a level place, that it's a simple place, that it's not lumpy. And this is the sanctification process. When you first stepped into a relationship with Christ, did you have some major boulders that needed to be moved out of the landscape of your heart? I did. As time has gone on, you know, it starts to be those those smaller boulders start to become really obnoxious. And the Lord says, all right, we're gonna deal with this stubborn boulder now. We're not gonna go with and hang out in these other ones. There's all these other things going on, but we're going to get this boulder out of your heart. If any of you had the Lord do that kind of surgery, that kind of landscaping in your heart, in the sanctification process, in our community, as pierced ones, as ones who have been Again, just <sighs> repenting from and repentant of that obstinate, hard, stiff-necked heart. As we are following the Lord, he is clearing our souls of the boulders. That as we look to him and hope there's coming a day when this, the, the landscape of this being will be totally made new in his image. I just think it's a beautiful picture as we have a snapshot of the church, of you know, going from this being convicted by the Holy Spirit to being put into this position of humility and simplicity in God, praising God together, having grace, having favor with all the people in the community. And this is, this is kind of a hard snapshot. It seems in the very beginning that God is giving them grace with all the people of Jerusalem, not just believers. So again, it's hard to know exactly what's going on in the community, though persecution is coming, as we'll see later on in the book of Acts. And here, ultimately, the Lord is the one who is adding to his church, his ecclesia, literally the called-out assembly daily, those who were being saved, present tense. I love that description too, just in regards to our hearts and our minds and our lives in relationship with the Lord. There is a point in history when we can look at and say, on this day, the Lord saved me. He pierced my heart and he entered in and he took up residence and he gave me the gift of the Holy Spirit. I am now owned by him. He adopted me as his child. I sit in today in the life experience where I know that he is continually transforming me. He's sanctifying me. He's setting me apart. He's removing obstacles out of my mind and my heart and my life so that I can do, so that I can speak and so that I can act in a way that he is leading me to act. Whether it's something that's simple or something that's totally radical. And then that hope, there is coming a day when I will be fully saved. There will be no more obstinacy. There will be no more stubbornness. I will be holy just as he is holy. I will be perfectly clothed in his righteousness and his love and his grace for all eternity. And we're told that those that have that hope, that that's a purifying, it has a purifying effect in our lives. I love this summary of what's going on in the early church. And I also love holding up the Bible's metrics to ourselves. Not the culture's metrics, not what the culture says is successful. But here's what Jesus wants us to be doing as a community of not just lovers of the Lord, but of lovers of one another. All right, worship team, come on up here. So, Heavenly Father, we're going to turn our attention back to you. Our attention's been on you this whole time, but out of your word, Lord, as we sit at your feet, as we listen to your voice, we're going to respond to you with hearts that you've made clean, hearts that you've removed the rubble from, hearts that you've made level and simple and humble. Lord, I pray for myself, And I also pray for my brothers and sisters. The cultivation that you desire to do in us today, Lord. Let none of us be in a position of obstinacy and rejecting your word. But remove those obstacles out of us, Lord. We sang earlier, Lord, we lift our our white flag. We surrender to you. I have been radically saved and I want to radically follow you, Jesus. Whatever that looks like in each of our lives and in our life in this community, let your will be done. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.
1: We're gonna... I'm going to read something to you real quick here out of John chapter 10. A couple of verses here, Uh, more than a couple. But uh, what's going on here, just for some context, um, is that uh, the Pharisees were trolling Jesus like they normally did. Most assuredly, I say to you, this is Jesus talking, by the way. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up by some other way, the same is a thief and a robber. But he who enters the door uh, is the shepherd of the sheep to him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Yet they by no means will follow another stranger, uh, they'll follow a stranger, rather, but will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Jesus used this illustration, but they didn't understand the things that he spoke then jesus said to them again most assuredly i say to you i am the door of the sheep all who ever came before me are thieves and robbers but the sheep did not hear them i am the door if anyone enters by me he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture the thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy i have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly i am the good shepherd the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep.